Would you join me? Matthew chapter number 20 this morning. Matthew chapter 20. As great as this past week was with all of its highs, uh, there was some difficulty a good bit and uh, connected with our, our faith family here and even my personal family. Um, just thinking as many as five of our folks, four of our folks here and even my dad in Asheville in the hospital uh, this week and one form or another and three still uh, think as we speak at this moment. Uh, just a lot going on. So we're reading about he's with us in the fire and there's some folks in the fire right now. They're in the fire. Um, been through some deep waters and some still have deep waters to go. Uh, so what a great song. God is sovereign over all of that. Matthew chapter 20. In a few moments, we're going to read verses 20 to 28. Uh, those of you that are keeping the notes and keep them in the, the little spiral book, the notebook, um, you will, if you were with us last week, you'll know that we did not have a handout, and that kind of that goes against my grain, right? Like, oh, we didn't do a handout. If I was you, that'd drive me crazy. Uh, but we just have that gap because we treated that as part of our communion service last week. In fact, those of you that, uh, is this John right here? John. Back from Kenya, so this guy has given two months, over two months, I think, of his summer uh, to serve the Lord in missions in Kenya. So it's good to see you this morning. I didn't even notice. Sorry, I was caught up my own thing. Praise the Lord. And uh, Rayanna as well, Rayanna Cape, uh, serving the Lord in various places, even in Mexico as well. Love what the Lord is doing through their lives. Matthew chapter 20. So I'm going to start reading verse 20, uh, verse 20 in just a moment. Let's quickly get the recap. You're not going to see verses 17 to 19 on the screen, but we need to just touch them quickly because it really adds flavor and, and a highlight. And there you are. Good to see you this morning as well. Uh, it's going to highlight to what the Lord uh, is going to say and do. Again, here's where we're at. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's just maybe 15 to 18 miles away. He's just a few days away. There's going to be an ascension toward Jerusalem. They're coming up on Jericho. He's been ministering over by uh, the River Jordan. And now he's heading toward Jericho, and then he'll move on to Jerusalem. And he said in verses 17, 18, and 19, he's predicting for the third time that when he gets to Jerusalem, several things are going to happen. He's going to be betrayed. He's not yet said who it is, but it's going to be one of the twelve. They're going to betray him to the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the chief priests. They're going to put him on trial. He's going to be condemned. So we know there's going to be a trial. There will be a sentence of condemnation. He, the perfect son of God, is going to be found guilty. Then his own people, the nation of Israel, are going to betray him over to the Gentiles, the Roman government. And they will mock him and scourge him mercilessly. Just a little mercy, just enough mercy to keep him alive because they ultimately want to crucify and they will crucify this Jesus, the Son of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ will be crucified. And then he says on the third day he will rise again. So he tells that to his disciples. He pulls the 12 aside. All these Jews are headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Tens and tens and tens of thousands, literally tens and tens of thousands heading that way. They're in that. He pulls them to the side. He coaches them on what to expect when they get there. It totally goes over their head as we see by what takes place next. Verse 20 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt and how this has been written multiple times, that then here means like the next thing to be spoken, the next thing to be said. I think, and I won't go into all the reasons why, 
I don't think this is immediate right after that. It can't be because halfway through the passage, you're going to see that 10 of the disciples are away from the Lord and he's going to have to call them over. So this is not in the exact same meeting. There's at least a little time, even if it's minutes or hours or maybe the next day, we're not sure, but not much time has gone between verses 17 to 19, this prediction of the Lord of his coming suffering and death, and then what happens in verse 20. And that's what really makes this all the more amazing. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. So go ahead and make that note. She's coming. Matthew focuses on her. Mark's gospel focuses on the two sons. She came up to him with her sons and kneeling. So she kneels before him. She asked him for something. She asked for something. She's, in essence, asking for a favor. Will you do me a favor? She comes to Jesus. I want to ask you to do something for me. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, here's what she wants. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Mark says the idea in your kingdom when you come into your glory. So they're anticipating the kingdom, the consummation, the earthly portion, the very visible portion of the kingdom. They think it's about to start. And so this woman is asking, can her son, her two sons, be on his immediate right and his immediate left when he comes into the kingdom, into his glory? Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Can my sons, will you just say it that my sons will be here and here when you come into your kingdom? You do not know what you're asking. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. And the you here, by the way, is plural. I'll point that out again. So everybody caught that? What Jesus is saying, the you is plural. So that means he's not talking to the mother so much. He's broadening out, talking to the son specifically. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able to drink the cup? The cup that I'm getting ready to drink, are you able to drink that? Watch what they say. They said to him, we're able. Are you able to drink? You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? We're able. Yep, we can do it. Just fire off an answer, not even knowing what in the world they're talking about. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup. In other words, you don't know it, but you will drink my cup, at least a portion. They're not going to drink the whole cup that Jesus has to drink. They're going to drink a portion. He says, verse 23, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Hey, listen, everybody, there's a plan, and God is sovereign, and God is carrying out the plan. And Jesus is saying, the ones that are going to sit on those two spots are those two for whom it's been prepared. And he doesn't name them. I got some good suggestions. But the Lord doesn't ask for my suggestions. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, what these two brothers and their mom are doing, they were indignant at the two brothers. I mean, they're ticked off. They're mad. They're angry. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, in other words, reading between the lines, you guys get on over here. You all need to hear this. And he gathers the twelve, and now he's talking to all of them. And in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
It shall not, everybody listening, it shall not be so among you. You guys know what you see out in the world. You know what you see with the Gentile rulers. You know what you see with the Gentile great ones, how they lord and how they exercise authority. It shall not be so among you. The idea of verse 26 is it is not so among you, and therefore it is not to be so among you. Do not let it be so. It shall not be so among you. Christians often forget this section, and we act like what Jesus says here has not been said. We act like it is so. Often, Christians try to rule and lord and exercise authority in the same way that the world does, the same way that you see down at your workplace. But the Lord says in verse 26, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great, what if I want to be great? Whoever, hear this grace for you, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If you want to be great, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, verses 20 and 21. No other way to say it. This is a very presumptuous and selfish request. It's an extremely presumptuous and selfish request. So guys, what I can't do this morning, by the way, it's pretty strong evidence. We know some things about this lady more than knowing that she's the, the mother of Zebedee's sons. We actually know her name, but it would take too long to map it out. Here's what you'd have to do. You have to go to the cross scenes in the four Gospels, and you'll find in, I think, three of the four, there's a listing of the ladies, the women who are present, and you'll find these different descriptions and names, and some have a name, and sometimes it's a description. And when you put it all together, we're able to decipher pretty strongly this woman's name and some relationships. So just kind of quick background. Her name is Salome. I think I'm saying that name correctly. And... She is actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So let that log. Her name is Salome. Here she comes, and she's coming on behalf of her sons. Name is Salome. She's the sister, by all appearances, she's the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So that makes her Jesus' what? Aunt. So if this is Jesus' aunt, then her two sons are Jesus' cousins. Does that play into it? Some, in fact, some thought, well, I guess that's probably one of the big things. Maybe they're thinking, hey, I'm your aunt. These are your cousins. Listen, we want this. Make sure that they have these spots and these positions. And so maybe they're looking for pure nepotism. Whatever happens here, Jesus is not going to be caught up in nepotism because nepotism has no place in the kingdom of God. Mark's version, chapter 10, verse 35, says that the sons came up, and they're also asking. In fact, here's how he words it. They want to know, would he, quote, do for us whatever we ask of you? So this is important. I'm going to break my own rule. I'm going to jump quickly into an application because I think there are lessons about prayer that are at play in this text. It's not the main thing, but I'm looking at this, and I kept coming back to Jeff, there's lessons about prayer. And I get it. Not everybody in here prays. There are Christians. There are Christians watching online. There are Christians sitting here listening this morning. And if you're just as honest as you can be, you do not set aside a time to pray. But I also know there's in this room and some watching online, you literally do set aside times to pray. And like you literally bring God into focus and you talk to God. We have some lessons that we need to learn. And if you don't yet pray, you need to learn some lessons so that when you're ready to start praying and you should start praying today, make that a priority. And there are some lessons here. So here's one. Notice what happens. She, in essence, and they come and say, will you do whatever we ask? She says, again, verse 
20, kneeling came before him and asked him for something. Will you do me a favor? And they're like, will you do anything that we ask? What does Jesus say? What do you want? What do you want? What does that tell us? I'm jumping to an application, but that tells me at least two things. One, Jesus is very willing to be entreated. You can entreat me. You can ask me. See, I think about prayer, and ultimately prayer, if you boil it all down, prayer is us talking to God. If you want to be more specific, prayer is us asking God for things, but it is all the communication, but the idea of prayer specifically, the idea of asking, they're praying because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is God. You see how I kept boiling that down? Jesus is God. They're coming to Jesus asking him for a favor. Will you do something for me? And he says, what do you want? Meaning, I'm willing to, hear me, I'm willing to be entreated, but he does not automatically give in. He does not commit himself to grant their request until he hears what the request is. Hey, will you do me a favor? Will you give me what I ask for? He does not say, well, sure. What do you have? What would you have me do? Of course I'll do it. If he were to do that, now he's on the hook. He doesn't do that. The New Testament, I'm going to go ahead and say it even stronger. Jesus in particular gives many, many, I mean, astounding promises about prayer, great promises about prayer. I'm going to finish that note in a moment. I want to show you just a few. Flip the page forward. Go to chapter 21. For me, it's the next page. Flip over to chapter 21 of Matthew. Just look at verse 22. We're not, we're not preaching it, teaching it yet. Just look what it says. Look at what Jesus says. You see it? <laughs> you guys see that? And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you have faith, flip back, like literally, go, go in your pages, flip back to chapter 7. This was a long time ago when we were preaching through this. Go back to chapter 7 of Matthew. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is the third chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, look at verse 7. Jesus talking. Just let this sink in. He says, ask. So it's not going to be on the screen. He says, ask. And it will be given you. This is our Lord talk. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if his son, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? We wouldn't do that. So he concludes, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? What is the Lord saying? Ask and seek and knock. If you'll do that, it'll be given to you. You'll find and it'll be opened up to you. So ask, seek, and knock. And then again, chapter 22, whatever you ask. John chapter, 16, John chapter 16, the Lord says, when the day comes after his resurrection, he says, you'll not ask me. He says, but whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you that your joy may be full. These massive promises. But again, I'm reading here, back in chapter 20, if you'll go back there. Let's finish that note. Jesus gives many great, precious promises about prayer, but something is implied in them all, and it's this. Our request must always conform to the will of God. Our request must conform to God's will. So he does not just launch out and put himself out on a limb that he has to answer. Their, no, what is your request? What would you have me to do? And, of course, we know that there's a huge problem with their request. Before I touch on that and finish the first point, can I brag on them? Do y'all see the positives of this group, these three people? They have great faith. 
They have great faith. I want you to feel that. So we look at this, and we, you see the title that I've given to point number one. But before we just dig in on that for a moment, think about the positive. These people have great faith. I want you to just think about them. Throw it fast. Number one, they believe in a literal kingdom. The Old Testament has been telling them that this kingdom of come, is coming. Jesus keeps preaching about the kingdom. They hear this. These two, these two sons, James and John, with their mother Salome, when they hear this, they believe in a literal kingdom. They believe Jesus is the king. They believe in chapter 19, Jesus says that his 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones, ruling and reigning over a restored nation of Israel in the kingdom that is to come. They believe that. Did you catch it? There's a real king. We know you're the king. There's a kingdom, and we know that we're going to rule and reign with you. They have faith in this. If he will say it, we just want you to say it because if you'll say it, it will happen. They believe if we find God or the Lord Jesus saying something, then it's going to happen. It has to happen because he is truthful. They have great faith. In fact, they're convinced. Now, there are two things. Watch. They're confused, but they're convinced. They're confused about what Jesus keeps talking about, his suffering and dying. Like, we don't know what that means that's totally going over their head, but in their mind, they are convinced that whatever he means about suffering and dying, when it's all said and done, he will be alive, ruling and reigning as the victorious king, and we're getting in on this. They have great faith. Got to give them credit. You say, so then what's the problem with their request? R.C. Sproul writes the following and how true it is. He says, whenever someone comes, by the way, some of you, be, you've seen this, you've lived it at work. Quote, whenever someone comes to a position of power, coming into their power, and everybody sees this happening, it's clear where it's going. Whenever someone comes to a position of power, be it a king, a president, or a superintendent on the job, get a new superintendent. He says, people scramble to get close to the seat of power. It's going to be a new king, and you'll see people jockeying for position. You'll see them, again, trying to promote themselves and getting close. Oh, it's going to be a new president, and all of a sudden people come out. Yeah, I was with you all along. I think this one's going to win. I want to give a donation, and I want a position. You say, oh, that new guy, yeah, I haven't really been very friendly to him or her, but it looks like they're going to be the new manager, and I need to get all my vacation days when I want them, so I'm going to start smoothing them. Hey, man, I, your kid's awesome, man. I love that, and you're so great. And all of a sudden, they start smoothing their way in. That's what they're doing. This is the problem. If you're taking notes, write, that down, write this down. There are at least three things that are wrong with their request. Number one, it's totally inappropriate, and it's extremely insensitive. Why? In fact, I forget how the words break down, so maybe you want to wait on writing that note. Just hear it first. What's wrong with their request? It's totally inappropriate. Because of verses 17, 18, and 19, the Lord's just told them, I'm going to be betrayed. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed to the scribes and to the chief priests. And then they're going to find me and guilty, and they're going to condemn me, and then they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock me, and they're going to scourge me, and then I'm going to be crucified, and then I'll rise again the third day. Right on the heels of hearing that, here they come asking for this favor that has to do with promoting themselves. It's totally inappropriate. It's totally insensitive. And it's extremely arrogant. Here's why it's especially arrogant. Apparently, in these two boys' mind and in their mother's mind, of all the people who've ever lived before them, who've put their faith in God, the, the kind of faith that, that 
results in salvation. Of all the people who've ever lived before them and of all the people who ever would live after them who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in their minds, these two are the most deserving to have the tight position of immediate right and immediate left of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, not to be, not to say anything bad about us young people, but John's like in his early 20s. Let that sink in. John's in his early 20s, it it appears. James may be in his later 20s and maybe early 30s. These guys have hardly lived a life, and in their mind, we're the most deserving. Will you do us a favor and let us have these two, two spots? How arrogant can you be? Number two, would you notice this morning, an informed and patient refusal. The Lord refuses their request. Their request was presumptuous. It was selfish. It's inappropriate. It's insensitive. It's arrogant, and the Lord gives a very informed and patient refusal. Look, if you would, verse 22. Look back at verse 22. Jesus answered, and again, we noted that the you is plural, so the Lord is now talking to James and John. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Look back at verse 22. You do not know what you're asking. Let that sink in. Hey, will you work it out that we are on your right and your left when you come into your glory and your kingdom? It's as though the Lord's thinking, catch this. If you guys had a clue what those two positions entailed, you might not want them. Everybody needs to pay attention here. I believe what the Lord is saying is with your current level of understanding, I mean, as you're standing, the the knowledge you have right now, you think you want these two positions. What I'm telling you, if you knew what they entailed, you might not want them. Now, I believe what's implied here is if you had the eternal perspective, which one day we'll all have. We'll get that. We'll see everything as it is. Oh, then, then this is a great position. And anything that it takes to have these positions would be very desirable and worth it. But what he's saying to them is, guys, fellas, as ignorant as you are, you have no idea what it takes to have these positions because it's not that the two positions are not great. They are great positions, but they're extremely costly. They're going to come with a high cost. You, whoever ends up there, has to drink my cup. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? So we have to ask ourselves, what is this cup? I'm looking again at verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So we ask ourselves, what is this cup? This cup is not a literal cup. It's a symbolic cup. Do you remember the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prays that this cup will be passed from him, that he can pass and not have to drink the whole cup the bitter cup, and the dregs, and the sourness, and the bitterness. So what is this cup? Write this down. The cup the Lord Jesus refers to is the bitter cup of suffering that he will drink to fulfill God's will for his life that he referred to back in verses 18 and 19. It is that betrayal, and that being put on trial, and that condemnation, and the mocking, and the scourging, and the crucifixion. And the Lord is saying, if you knew what it entailed, to be at my right and my left, you probably wouldn't want it with the awareness that you have right now. What I find especially frustrating is when he asked them, are you able to drink the cup? They very just quickly, with no thought, 
No wait. No wonder. That's the key thing. They don't understand. They say, yeah, we are. Yeah, we can do it. We're good. They, they're so blinded by the glory of a position that they, in their mind, they're willing, yeah, well, we can take anything that comes with it. We just want this, and the Lord knows better. Their response shows, saying, yes, we are able. Their response shows that they did not understand something. What they don't understand is that, to, this is important for us, is that to ask to rule and reign and be great in the kingdom of God is in essence to ask, Lord, I want to suffer with you. I want to suffer with you. Lord, we want this position and this position. Do you know what that entails? To be The people who end up sitting here will be those that suffer with me greatly. In fact, guys, I'm going to offer this. I can't say it's explicit. It is not explicit in the text, but I think it's implicit in the text. This passage to me very strongly implies, let this sink in, that the places of absolute highest honor in Christ's kingdom are reserved. I mean, the place of highest honor, you're like, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? This passage and others like it imply to us the places of highest honor in the kingdom are reserved for those whose lives on earth had the most service and the most suffering. The most service, the most suffering. And I believe Paul was one who particularly got a glimpse of that concept, and that why he, that's why he was so willing to serve so tirelessly. He was so willing to endure hardship and suffering because he knows ultimately what it leads to. He had had a glimpse of the third heaven. And so here these two sons and their mother are asking this question, and the Lord knows their hearts. Guys, I'm going to propose to you, it's not so much what they ask. It's not that they ask for those positions. He knows their heart. It's why they wanted these positions. If, had they wanted these positions so they could use these places of authority as a platform from which to advance Christ's kingdom and give all the more glory to the Lord, that would be one thing. That's not their thought. Their thought is we want these positions because we want everyone to see us and think that we're great, kind of like you're great. We're going to get the overflow of your greatness, so we want to get really close to you. They want to be seen as great, and the Lord sees right through that and he says you don't understand you do not know what you ask so I go back again to the thought of prayer this woman does three things that are very good watch she comes to Jesus that's what you ought to do you have needs she comes to God the Lord Jesus she kneels so she has a level of humility and she's very specific I want one son on your right and one son on your left when you come into your kingdom of glory. Couldn't be more clear. I believe we should pray specifically. We automatically ought to come to the Lord and we need to come in humility. She does three great things. But there's a problem. You don't know what you ask. Grace, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for myself. I know this to be the case. I can't say exactly when it is always. But I wonder if when we get to eternity and we're looking back, if we will not find that had the Lord chose to spoke to us audibly in the moment, I wonder how many times we've prayed and the Lord could have said to us, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. I want this, Lord. Please make this happen. This affected me this week. I finally had to reach a point where I had to surrender my will because I wanted this to happen. And it'd be great. It'd be great if my will ends up happening. It didn't happen exactly as I wanted. We'll see. But pray this. And again, I mentioned these people are in the hospital, so I pray for certain things. But sometimes I wonder if the Lord wouldn't say, you don't know what you're asking. 
you don't understand. It's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that he does not grant every request and every desire that we have and that we make. It's his mercy. God is too wise to do everything that we ask. God in his wisdom often withholds from us. I can't reteach and re-preach chapter 19, but my mind went there especially. You'll not see it on the screen, but if you have your Bible open in chapter 20, just glance back at chapter 19. Can I give you some examples of what I just said? How many times would the Lord tell us, hey, I hear your prayer, but you don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand what you're saying. And I'm not going to give it. I'm going to refuse. I'm going to withhold that. Verse 23 of chapter 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is e- let this sink in. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Like, it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible for a rich person to be saved. Why? It's impossible for any person to be saved. As far as our own ability, no one can save themselves, but especially the one who cannot save himself is the rich person. And a point we made three weeks ago is that if if we were in charge of the allocation of everything, if we were in charge of assigning things, I know what I would do. I would assign myself to be the smartest, the funniest, the most athletic, the most skilled, the most charming, the best looking, and the richest. And you'd do the same thing. If you were in charge, you would ass- I'm telling you, every person in here, you would assign tremendous riches to yourself. But what the Lord's trying to tell us, if you do that, you don't know what you're doing because you're choosing the most difficult position to be saved. Not many rich people get saved. And you're choosing the most difficult position to be godly even if you were to be saved. But we think, oh, no, I want it. This is so appealing. I can handle it. That's what they did. Can you drink the cup that I drink? We want this. This appeals to us. Can you drink the cup that I drink of? And off the bat, they're like, yes, we are able. I thought about it this way. Often we very foolishly assume that we can handle what goes with an appealing situation. We can handle it. We get so caught up in the appeal, but we're ignorant. I'm talking about we. That's not a bad word. I'm saying we're ignorant. I talk about the difficulty of riches. Y'all know what you start thinking? Jeff, I'm the exception. I could handle it. And we joked about that two weeks or three weeks ago. God, lay it on me. Try me. I promise I can handle it. I'm already saved. I can still be good. Listen, Grace View, if you struggle to read your Bible on a daily basis and if you struggle to have a prayer time with the Lord that's worth two cents, do you think if you had billions of dollars, that you would suddenly spend time in God's Word and spend time in prayer, I'll promise you, you wouldn't. You'd be so distracted by your money and what it can buy and all the pleasures and trying to keep and build more and more money. And, and I don't need to pray and ask God for things. I just buy it. Family trouble, I'll throw money at the family trouble. Oh, got a problem in the community, I'll throw money at it. You'd start looking like that. I'm telling you, this is a difficult thing. But in our mind, we think, no, 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 I'm the exception. I can handle it. Just lay it on me, Lord. This is so appealing. And the Lord's like, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't get it. I'm not giving you that because you can't handle it. The world is full of preachers, pastors, who are very discontent with their church. In their mind, the guy that has 25 people in his church, in his mind, he thinks, boy, if I just had 75 then that would really, and the guy that has 75 in his church thinks, if I just had about 200, 225, 
And the guy that has like 400 thinks, if I just had 1,000 people. And the guy that has 2,000 thinks, if we just had 10,000, I think that would be not realizing all along the way. Now, they may have done it and may have experienced and realized, but often what people, when, when we do that, we don't realize the demand changes. Be careful what you ask for. And some of you guys' world, there are employees who in their heart of hearts think, I wish I was the supervisor. I wish I was the supervisor at work. Or maybe even, I wish I was the owner of the company. Can I just advise you, be careful what you ask for, what you long for. There's tremendous value in being able to clock out at the end of the day. I talked with a man Thursday. He has 15 people under him, and he has a number of people over him, and he's right in the middle. And he was sharing with me how he has all these vacation days, but he can't take them. Because he's got to make sure these people get their vacation days. And those people above him, they get their vacation. They're going to take them. And he's stuck in the middle. He's getting told by them. And I need this. And he's right there. Now, I'm sure all these people down here think, if I was chief, if I was this or that or the other, and I was this person, then I would. And care for what you ask for. Here they come. Lord, we want this position and this position. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what, it, what that entails. You don't know the difficulty and the hardship. Notice verse 23. So the Lord gives a very patient but an informed answer to their selfish and presumptuous, inappropriate, insensitive, and arrogant request. Verse 23. He said to them, you will drink my cup. Can you drink my cup? We can. In my mind, again, not trying to add to the scripture. In my mind, I think it went something like this. You do not know what you ask for. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, we're able. (sighs) You will drink my cup. Oh, okay. No, you will drink my cup. See, what they don't realize at the moment is these two brothers, within months, are going to be arrested multiple times. I've never been arrested in my life. I've had a few tickets. Speeding tickets. Two were total, total ignorance. My first two, I literally did not know the speed, the, the speed limit. It had changed, and I didn't realize it. The other two, I was in a hurry. Um, justified it in my mind. Never been arrested. Within months, guys, these two brothers are going to be arrested multiple times. They're going to be beaten by order of the chief priests and scribes. They don't know it. Listen, guys, listen. This mother has no clue. But her oldest son, James, within just a few years, probably 12 to 15 years, he's going to be the first out of the 12 to be killed. He's going to be killed by a sword at the order of Herod the Great's grandson. Herod Antipas is going to have him killed by a sword. She has no clue that he's going to be the first martyr among the 12 disciples. She has no clue that the other brother, the younger brother, John, is going to live 50 years longer than the other one. But, and he'll be the only of the 12 that will not actually be martyred for his faith. But he's going to have his faith persecuted and tested. And he's going to be tortured for his faith multiple, multiple times. And he's going to live a very hard life. So she doesn't know it yet. And that's what the Lord's saying. None of you are going to drink the whole portion of the cup that I drink. But you're going to drink a portion. My cup's going to spill over on you guys, and you're going to feel it. He knows you're getting ready to die in about 12 to 15 years, and you're going to live to be about 95 years old, but you're going to have a hard life. I had to cut the quote, but I want to get the idea from William Barclay. Write this down. 
Because everybody's portion of the cup is different and there's no one right or wrong way. God's in charge of this. James was assigned the cup of martyrdom. Literally lost his life. While John's portion of the cup was literally the day to day, month to month, year to year, sacrifice of the Christian life with all of its hardship and pain and service. And so he had to live that life. And so John's life was not an easy life. It was a glorious life and no doubt a well-rewarded life and a wonderful life and a well-lived life. James' life was 50 years shorter. So he gives about 12 or 15 years to serve and John has like 65 years to serve. Which one would you choose to do? Would you say, man, the choice was mine. Man, he lived a hard life. He ends up supposedly by tradition. He gets boiled in oil and he gets put out on the island of Patmos where prisoners are put basically to bake in the sun at the end of his life as an old man. I don't know that I want to live that life. I think I'd rather just go ahead and have a sword put, put in me or cook it, go ahead and cut my head off and let it be done with. That way I'll go on to heaven long before my brother. Which one would you choose? Others of you would be like, no, nah, I'm, I'm allergic to pain. I don't want that. I'd at least like to try to keep living and get to serve the Lord longer. But the point being, each was different and each was faithful. But they didn't know it at this point. Verse 23, one more time. He said to them, you will drink my cup... Watch the last part. I'm not going to spend long on it. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So what do we see here? We see God the Son surrendering and submitting to God the Father. And this gets tricky. We talk about the Trinity, and we don't understand the Trinity. All all I'm going to say this morning is this. There are not three gods. There are not many gods. There is one God. There is only one God. But the one God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. I understand. The closest thing that we can relate to it is you. You're the closest thing. You say, what in the world? How is that? You are made in the image of God. You have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Your soul is different than your spirit. Your body is different than your soul and your spirit. Each one is distinct. Each one is unique. Who runs the show? Does your body run the show? Or does your mind, your spirit run the show? Do your emotions run the show? That's, each one is distinct and different. So here's the point. The, the Son, God the Son is surrendering to God the Father. Sproul again writes it this way. He says, just as the Father has determined from the foundation of the world that his Son will sit as the King in his kingdom, so he has determined who will sit on Jesus' right and left. He has done that. Jesus was simply telling James and John that it was pointless to ask for such positions. Why? Because the decision was not up to Jesus. I joked earlier. Jeff, who do you think? I have no clue. The Bible does not say who will have these two positions, but it's been predetermined and appointed by God. Maybe in my mind I might think, man, maybe it's, maybe it's David and Paul. Maybe it's Peter and Paul. Maybe it's Moses and Peter, Moses, Paul, Moses. You know, we can go around like that. But here's the thing. Look, glance back in, in your mind. You have chapter 20 open. Look back at verse 16. Look back at verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. Look back at chapter 19, verse number 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So this has been emphasized and it occurs to me, Jeff, be careful how you think. We may find out it's very surprising who has the immediate right and the immediate left. There may be some woman that's lived in the world since then, before them or after them, and she just has the most service and the most suffering, and she ends up having the spot on the right or the left. We are not told. We'll see. And it might surprise us. And the last thought before our third point this morning is, comes out of verse 24. When the ten heard it, 
They were indignant at the two brothers, and they came up to the two brothers, and they said, I can't believe you're so insensitive. Jesus just said he's going to be crucified, and here you guys are worried about your own glory on his right and on his left. Y'all read that, right? Everybody saw that? Yeah, that's not what happened. They didn't come out. I can't believe how inappropriate. You guys, you boys are out of line. You two brothers. No. Why are they indignant? They want the same thing. Hey, you two guys up there asking. No, no, no. They want the exact same thing. The only thing is that mother and those two boys beat them to the punch and asked for it and got rejected. And now they're mad at them. I feel like going back in time, and if I could go back and say, well, why are you guys mad at them? Because they're over there asking for that position. So you, don't, you think they're not deserving of that? Absolutely not. Who do you think is deserving? You know what I think they would start doing? They'd probably start looking around at the other ten of them. Well, guys, do you not even think anyone before, anyone before you or anyone after you might be deserving? Why does your attention immediately go to yourselves? You say, Jeff, you're kind of coming down kind of hard on them. I don't think that's really what was in their heart. Yes, it was because the next week at the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22, we're going to find that they're still arguing over which of them is the greatest. Do you all remember what the Lord did when they were arguing about that? Who's the greatest? What does the Lord do at the Last Supper? He washed their feet. And that leads to the third thought this morning. An unexpected paradigm of greatness. There's an unexpected paradigm of greatness. So verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, so let's read this again, verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. I think what's happening here in verse 25, it's as though the Lord is like, first of all, you ten stop acting like you want anything different than them. Y'all gather around, you need to hear this. Disciples, listen, I know your heart. I get it. You want to be great. I took it out of my notes, so I'm going to wing it for a second. I know that in this room and some watching online, there are some folks, because we're different in our personalities, there are some folks, you're not driven by greatness. That does not consume your thoughts. And we're wired differently, and that's okay. But there are some folks who literally your mind works. And by the way, it shows up from the time you're on the playground as a little kid. You go back to your days and some are just very content. It shows up in school and it shows up at the workplace. Some are extremely content to clock in, clock out, do their work and go live their private life. Others are just so driven like I just want to go in there. They're coming down here. Give me a few years. My goal is to be here. And then I'm going to leave this place and I'm really going up there. And they have these big plans. And so the Lord's, in essence, telling his disciples because they're all caught up in which one of them is going to be the greatest. They all want it. And so the Lord is, it's not necessarily wrong. He doesn't shoot it down as all wrong. In essence, what he's saying is, I get it. You boys want to be great, but here's the problem. You don't get how to be great. You don't understand. So grace, this is where we're going to finish this morning. The Lord is saying, you want to be great, but you don't know how. You think this is the way. This is the way you think this is how to be great. This is what greatness looks like. The Lord is literally saying you need to flip that literally upside down. You need to like invert that totally. Totally change. You're going to have to have a total overhaul of the way you think. 
It's as though the Lord is saying, stop being fooled by what you see all around you. My kingdom is totally different. And the Lord just keeps pounding away this idea. His kingdom has unique, different dynamics. It started in chapter 18. Those who really want to be great need to be like what kind of person? Who remembers that? You must become like children, little child. That's not how we think. The Lord has been telling us in his kingdom, here's an unusual dynamic. We need to let it sink in. Here's what he says. The rich are at a disadvantage. We think, no, the rich have a major advantage. He's telling us, no, they have a disadvantage. It's not wrong or sinful to be rich. And if you can handle it and use it for the Lord's kingdom and furthering his work, it is a great thing, but it is a difficult thing. They have a hard life. And I know you're thinking again, give me that hard life, Lord. Right? That's how we think. We can handle it. I'm the exception. The Lord says, again, back in chapter 29, those who leave houses and leave their lands, and especially those who leave their family, they're gaining. You're like, no, they're leaving. They're losing. He says, no, they're gaining. How many people have left their family for the cause of Christ? And they're gaining. And the tears are shed, and their heart is broke, and they long just like any normal human being, but they are gaining. This is the dynamic in his kingdom. Remember this. The Lord says in his kingdom, the first are going to be last. And the last are going to be first. So now we come to chapter 20. Look at verse 25. Jesus called. Look at it with your eyes. He called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. What's the way of the world? This is what we see. The way of the world is that whoever has authority wields it like a boss. They wield their authority like a boss over those who are under them. This is the worldly way. They've got the authority, and so they wield their authority like a boss over those who are under them. The Lord comes along and says, it will not be that way with you. The way of Christ is that those who actually have authority in his kingdom... Use their authority as a leader by setting the example for others to follow. Catch the difference. One says, I'm over. And their power and their mentality and their exertion of their force is very downward. The Lord says those who are in his kingdom who have authority, use their authority to lead and to set the example. So to complete our note, here's a thought I want to impress upon us this morning. A boss and a leader, greatly different. How? In their attitude and in their actions. Leaders do things that bosses do not do. Leaders think and feel and have perspectives that bosses do not have. The Lord says, I don't need any bosses in my kingdom. I do need leaders. So again, one's force and thought is downward, downward. All these people are underneath me. The other person's force and thought and efforts and strength is upward, lifting up and supporting these people. It is outward. It's upward. It's outward. It's forward. Notice what it is not. It is not over. They don't have this mindset, I'm over. They have this mindset, I'm under. Where does that apply? In our families. Those of us who are in our family, if you have a position of leadership in your immediate family or the extended family, people look up to you. What's your mindset? Yes, I'm over the family. I'm over the family, and they're here to do. You go in some places, and it's like, oh, that's Queen Bee right there. Wow. 
Look at all the swarm doing, making sure she's happy. Wrong mentality. That's an overview. Need to take a, whoa, because I have this position in the family or at work or at the school or in the church or in the community, I'm under. The, the world envisions greatness this way. Greatness, true greatness, you're sitting on a throne and everybody adores you. And people are lined up all around. Or really, it's almost like a swarm. It's kind of like, like the queen bee or the queen ant. They're all giving their life to defend, and they're all giving to support. And if anything else, we've got to keep the queen happy and keep the queen healthy. That's the world mentality. Greatness is being on a throne, being adored. Many people around you lined up to meet your every whim. Jesus comes along and changes the dynamic. That's what the world says is great. The Lord says, no, turn it totally upside down. Write this note. Jesus ties greatness to humble service of others for his glory. So as I said earlier, is there any room for ambition in his kingdom? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, there is room for ambition in the kingdom. But did you see it? He says, it shall not be so among you, verse 26, Here's the room for ambition. Whoever would be great. But Jeff, what if it's in me? What if I want to be great? Okay, whoever would be great. So there is room for ambition in his kingdom, but it must be an ambition to serve him by serving other people. That's the ambition. It is all about the mentality. So I know that right now, some of you writing that note, right now some of you are in positions of leadership. You have leadership. It may be over a department right here at the church. You have leadership in, in the home. You have leadership at school. You have leadership at the workplace. You have leadership in your community. I want to ask you, I really want you to search your heart. So this is one of the main takeaways from the passage today. If you're a leader... Or if you aspire to be a leader, you say, Jeff, I'm not a leader. If you want to be a leader, why? What is your mentality? Check your heart. If you are a leader, check your mentality. Do you in your heart and your mind see yourself as I'm over these people? Or can you honestly say, my view is I'm under these people, supporting and holding them up. I'm in front of these people. Not like I'm better than, but because I'm the leader, I know where we're going. I know what needs to happen. I'm out in front calling, come with me. Come do this. Follow my example. And when they move up with you, you don't get threatened because you love being beside people, working with them. You see, this model, this person up here, they, their force is downward. Anytime someone starts getting close to them, they start getting really threatened because their position is threatened. The true leader is like, oh, no, I want everybody doing what I'm doing. Let's all go this direction. Let's work together. What can I do to uphold you? That's what the Lord is saying. You get that mentality and you're going to be great. That's the opposite of the world's mentality. Look at verse 26 quickly. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. We get drunk on power. Leaders, men and women, get drunk on power and the Lord knows that and so he warns us. In his kingdom, leaders become slaves, and slaves are appointed as leaders. Barclay writes it the following way. I thought this was a really good quote. Hear it first. You'll write the second part in a moment. Hear it first. It has more than one part. Based off verse 25 and 26, he writes, quote, Greatness consists in doing things for others. 
That's not how we think. Greatness consists in doing things for others. And the greater the service, the greater the honor. He says, this is important, Jesus uses a kind of gradation. Hear it. If you wish to be great, he says, be a servant. If you wish to be first, like, what if I want to be like more than great? If you wish to be great, be a servant. If you wish to be first of all, be a slave. Be a slave. What do you want to be? You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Then you go be the best slave that's ever lived. See yourself as a slave to other people. And we hear that and we think, how far does this extend? Who all does this apply to? And then we read verse 28 and we find out how far it goes. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. My mind goes back to verses 18 and 19. If you remember last week before we took communion, I noted something unusual. It says all these things are going to happen to the Lord in the physical realm, but it doesn't tell why it's going to happen. And now here we are a few verses later and we find out why. I'm going to go ahead and throw this out, Grace, for you. As we get to chapters 26, 27, 28, because this is so new and this is so framing, this is going to set the picture and the framework for the last three chapters of the book. This thought right here, because we're going to get caught up in all these physical things that are happening. These layers of the trial and the scourgings and the mockings and the crucifixion. We're going to get caught up in that, but it's all flowing from what the Lord says here. Be like me, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as he says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put on trial. They're going to find me guilty. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me, scourge me, and crucify me. Why is this all happening? So I step back and I ask myself, why would, think about this, why would the eternal Son of God who fills the universe, the eternal Son of God who has all power, who has all knowledge, who has infinite glory, let that thought sink in, all power, all knowledge, Fills the universe everywhere present, completely perfect, infinite glory, never finding an end to his glory. Why would he become a human being and limit himself and come to earth and live among sinful mankind for 33 years? Why would he do that? In verse 28, he gives two reasons. The first one is he came to serve. Jesus shows there's no exceptions. So who's this applied to? This whole model this paradigm shift that is so unique and unexpected of greatness, this serving, Jesus shows there's absolutely no exceptions. There are no shortcuts to eternal glory. There are no exceptions about how to have eternal glory. There are no shortcuts to eternal glory. And everyone who has it must find themselves giving humble service. There are none who are exempt from humble service. Jesus holds himself to his own standard. He says, this is true greatness. And then he sets the example Obviously, what's implied to me in verse 28, it doesn't say it. It says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. What's the implication? Jesus, of all people, deserves to be served, and yet he doesn't serve. I'm sorry, he does, he's not served. He deserves to be served, but he is not served. Follow his example. And the strange thing there is of the 12 of them, one of them, of the 13, one of them truly is great. Jesus is the greatest. He's the greatest. There's no doubt about it. He is the greatest among them, yet look how he lives. How did he live his life? He lived his life constantly serving others, teaching, 
and preaching and healing. Those of you who were here this past week, some of you, I saw you, you were working, working, serving, serving, serving. You went home exhausted. You went home tired. The Lord finished every day that way. Remember when he was in this boat and, and these fishermen thought they're on the Sea of Galilee and the, the waves are coming into the boat and the wind and they're, in their mind they just know we are going to die. Jesus is so tired and exhausted that he is just sleeping. They have to wake him up. Lord, do you not care that we perish? He's exhausted every day. He serves and he serves. People are all the time coming to him. Again, if you had it this week, I, I was watching Brandon. He may be watching. So Brandon, turn your volume down if you're watching. Brandon exemplified this week what, I'm, what we're talking about here in verses 25, 26, and 27. He was, he was underneath everybody, and he was out front with everybody, and he was alongside everybody, and not one time did I ever feel like he was here talking down to everybody. He was just so thankful and appreciative, and he had a plan, and, man, he had zeal, and he was going for it all week long, and he had this exact mentality that the Lord, and that's why he was the chief servant here last week. He exhibited this in Christ's likeness. Christ is the greatest, and yet he gave his life serving others. True greatness in this passage is equated with Christ-likeness. The Lord's saying, if you want to be great, be like me. The more you're like me, the greater you are. So just before I hit the last thought, I want you to picture it this way. Can we think of it this way? Think of a scale, a line. I'm going to put three dots, three locations on the line. You ready? Here's a group. Some are in the room right now. Sorry, I'm going to tell it like it is. Not great. Not great. Then there's a second group on the scale. Greatness. And then there's another group on the scale. Greater. I'll say it again. Not great. Saved, but not great. Greatness. Greater. How do, what goes with each spot? The not great, I'm getting ready to describe them. They only are served. They're only takers. All these people kept coming to the Lord to receive, receive, to be takers. He's always the giver. He's the giver. He's the server. He should have come, we would think, come from heaven with all that glory, come to earth, and just come for a little bit of time, and the whole world come and just bow down and worship and adore, and off he goes. That's what deserves to have happened. But the Lord came and actually served. And here we are, takers, takers, takers. So here's some people, not great, because all they do is take and receive. They don't ever serve. And then there's greatness. And these are folks who are servants. They are givers. They're givers. You say, well, then what's this greater? They're not just servants. They're slaves. They don't just give for a period of time and a burst on a certain day within certain hours. A slave's mentality is this literally is my lifestyle. This is my identity. Who's in that category? So I'm reading this passage this week, and it becomes very clear. Jeff, you got a long way to go, buddy. you got a long way to go. And so I'm praying for the Lord to make me a better leader. Some people see themselves as pretty great in the whole scheme of things, but they have no greatness because they don't use their life to serve the Lord. They don't use their life to serve the Lord by serving the church. Let me make it clear. You say, I want to do something for God. Here's how you do something for God. You do something for the church. 
You want to serve God, serve the church. So if you're sitting here this morning like, I can't think of one thing that I actually do to serve the Lord. All these people running around this, this week, you serve the Lord. Thank you for serving. Thank you for serving tirelessly. Now find something new to do. Others, if you're like, I can't think of one thing. Okay, you're over in this group. You may be saved, but you need to move from the not great crowd. You need to move into the serving crowd. And those of us who are serving, we need to think, Lord, I want to give more of my life, more of my identity. I am a servant of you. I just want to die and let death find me serving you being faithful. And then let the chips fall where they may. Spend your life helping other people hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I believe if you help them hear it, you will hear the same thing when your day comes. Spend your life serving them. And then verse 28. What's the Lord's greatest service? So our last thought is this. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom. So I want to ask you, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, don't say it out loud, but again, some of you are like, okay, hurry up, wrap it up, we hear this a lot. No, let me ask you, be specific in your mind, what is a ransom? Don't say it out loud. When we read this idea, this is the first time this word here for ransom only comes up two times in the New Testament. What is a ransom? What comes to your mind? Do you have it? I asked you last week, what are we thinking when we're talking about communion? Today I'm asking you, when we do baptism, where's our mind? What's our theology? Here's some theology. The Lord says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So what's our thought here? What is a ransom? Let's write this down. A ransom was the purchase price. It's the purchase price to free a slave. It's the purchase price to to free a captive. So that tells us right off the bat, much more time to appreciate this than I have time to go into. To get, to get what is in this verse, in this word, in this line, this one sentence, we would have to go home and really project ourselves as best as possible, knowing we're going to come up way short. We have to really put ourselves in this idea, that what if I were a real like physical slave, like chained, enslaved? Or what if I was in a cage? What if I was like in a rack, in a cage, in a cell? I'm a captive. I'm being held captive. And someone comes along, and they're willing to pay. How much for that slave right there? Oh, they're expensive. We learned on Wednesday nights in this time period. Slaves back then could cost anywhere from $50,000 up to $5 million for the highly most skilled slaves. How much for that slave? And this person says, I'll pay it. And now you're that person's slave. But they say, just take the shackles off. Okay, what do I have to do? I want you to live in freedom. And I want you to serve me because you want to. I want you to serve me as a bond servant. But you're not going to be in these shackles. How much to free that prisoner out of that cell? It's this much. And the person pays it. We cannot appreciate what's going on in verse 28 until we really pause and understand captivity and bondage and slavery. And then project that into freedom and redemption. And that's what the Lord says, why I came. So why did he come? To serve. And in his greatest act of service was giving his life to make the payment. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth to give his very life on a cross, his broken body and his shed blood, to make the payment that is required to free all of mankind. The payment has been made for mankind to be freed from our sins penalty, to be freed from sins power. That's ultimately what we're looking at. And then we look at that and the theologians ask this question, yeah, but... uh, What's the question? What's the question that haunts in your mind? I just said, how much for that slave? And they pay it. How much for that captive to free them? I'll pay it. So here comes the Lord. Sees us in our sin, 
in its power, the grip of its power, and in the condemnation of its penalty because we've sinned. We have to be punished and die and separated from God for eternity. So death must be paid for all of our sin. And the Lord comes along and says, I will pay that. So what question haunts the back of our mind? Who is the payment made to? And so some people have concluded, well, we were held captive by sin and Satan. So I guess guess Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and pay the ransom price. And so he must have brought his blood as a payment to Satan to free us. Okay, if if your mind goes there, real quick, put the kibosh on that. Because that's wrong. God owes Satan nothing. He gets nothing. You say, then who is the payment paid to? Your last thought this morning, write this note, please. The cross death of Christ and the blood of Christ was the ransom payment that God himself, who's it paid to? It's the price that God himself required to satisfy his own holiness and his own justness to remove our sin and to pay the penalty of our sin. So I'm not necessarily saying automatically the payment is to God, but it was God that required the payment. Satan did not require this payment. Satan does not want to see any of us free. God came up with a plan because his holiness could not be compromised. I want you to hear me. God hates sin. He cannot let any sin into heaven. He abhors sin. He hates sin. It goes totally against his nature. He will not have it in heaven. And so our sin has to be removed. You say, I'm going to heaven. Are you going to heaven? Have your sins been removed? Christ shed his blood on the cross. His blood literally removes our sin and cleanses us. But the justness of God demands a payment for the penalty. Death must be paid. There must be punished. I'm not going to have any of my sins punished in myself in hell because Christ took all of my punishment. He says, I'm taking away their sin and I'm paying the penalty for their sin. And he gave his life as a ransom, and the last two words say, for many. He gave his life as a ransom for many. For all? Did he give his life as a ransom for all? Will everyone go to heaven? No, they will not. So I close with this thought. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' ransom payment of his life, hear hear this please, it's sufficient. It is sufficient to pay for every sin of every sinner who's ever lived. His death on the cross is sufficient. But not every person is going to receive the benefit of that. It's sufficient to pay for all sin of all sinners, but it is only effective for those who trust the promises of God. You say, Jeff, what's the difference between the many in verse 28 and all people who've ever lived? Here's the difference. The many are those who trust God, who trust the promises of God, who trust the Lord Jesus key. The many are those who in their heart of hearts believe so much in their mind, they hear it, they understand, they agree with what God's word says so much that they literally depend and rely on the death of Christ to be sufficient to pay for all their sins. That's the many. Everybody else who just knows it in their head or those who never even hear about Jesus dying on the cross, they're in the all. The majority of people die and go to hell, but the many, and it is many, it is billions, billions of people have put their faith and trust in Christ because his life was given as the purchase price to free us from the power and the penalty of our sins. Heads bowed. 
just for a moment, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before I pray, we had a lot in this passage today. This was a longer, even than normal message. I understand that. We had this question. It's presumptuous. We had the Lord giving the very patient answer, a very well-informed answer, and it talked a lot about our prayer life. But here we heard about this unusual, unexpected paradigm of greatness that is illustrated and exemplified in the life of the Lord Jesus, ultimately and in its greatest form by him giving his very life to serve mankind as a ransom. So i got to start by asking you, have you received the ransom payment of Christ for your sins. He's done everything that's needed. The difference between all the people who will die and go to hell and the many whose sins have been paid and they're freed from the power of sin, the difference is the many have faith. It is the kind of faith that hears the gospel, hears what Jesus did, which he just said in verse 28, so much so that they believe and trust and rely that that promise extends to them. So the main difference is the word faith. We believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, that's the difference between the all and the many. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12 Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's about believing. So here's what I'm going to say. Hear it carefully. God has received the ransom payment of Jesus' life for your sins. Have you received the ransom payment of Christ's life for your sins? Have you received it? You can't move a muscle. You can't pray a perfect prayer. You can't move your vocal cords, your arms. It's not signing a card. It's not shaking my hand. Literally, it is you hearing that truth, bringing God into your focus and saying, God, I believe you. I believe your word. You said Jesus' death is the ransom for my sin. I don't want to pay for my sins in hell. I receive Christ's payment for my sin. Have you confessed your sins to God and received his payment? If not, do it now. Literally, just talk to the Lord tell him you are receiving once and for all the ransom payment of Christ and then just before we pray if you aspire to leadership or if you are in any area of leadership what is your honest view to those that are around you do you see them as under you if so let's not do that anymore do you see them as beside you and above you your role is to support Yes, to move out front, but to call them to come alongside. What can I do to help you here? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You say, Jeff, I'm not really worried about a title. I don't need a position. It's just, I'm just not wired that way. Can I just kindly say to you, just before we pray, Jesus says greatness is service. When you get to heaven, you're going to want to have lived a great life. So live a life of service. Become a servant. Become a slave. Are you willing to sacrifice? And then let's pray that the Lord will make our prayers surrendered to His will. You who pray, 
So this week, had I had my way, my son would be sitting here on the second row this morning instead of on his way back to the Marine Corps to be part of the fleet. He had an opportunity to be local and work here for about a month. And I was praying very definitely for that to happen. Lord, just let these 10 days extend on out. Please let that happen. And then I'm studying this this week, and it occurs to me, Jeff, you need to surrender to the ultimate will of God. I'm looking at this passage, and I'm thinking, I'm really not any different than these three people. I pray for prayers that I think will benefit me, and the Lord often allows that and often grants that. But I think the lesson is, Jeff, when you pray for prayers that benefit you, always consciously surrender and so what I started doing the latter part of the week is Lord this may not be the best time for him to have this local assignment and so if not then let it be later Lord is it better if it's later and then I had to be like Lord maybe you never want him to have this local assignment Lord it may be best that he not have that or Lord maybe it's a combination the above and so where I've landed is Lord I'm asking for this but I'm surrendering because you have the wisdom you're so merciful to not grant everything that I want can you join me this morning in asking God to teach us to pray in a surrendered way Father you've invited us to make requests you said to ask and seek and knock Lord you've attached tremendous weight and promises to those so Lord I pray that we take advantage of that and pray big, bigger than we have been praying. And Lord, you know our hearts. We, just like these three people, we pray for things that will benefit us. And you hear us, and so often you grant those. Lord, you made a big one for me this week. You gave a great thing in our life. Thank you for that. So Lord, I'm going to keep praying, keep asking, even for things that benefit us. But Lord, teach us to surrender ultimately to your will because you see everything. You know what's best. You are sovereign over all, and you have a plan. Lord, let us become servants of others, even to the point of being their slave and lining up under and beside and going forward, leading people to further your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name.